In today's episode, we talk about the power of curiosity, rockstar pastoring, and the dreams of God. I'm Justin, and welcome to The Quiet Reformation. Tim Sorens is an author and the co-founding director of the Parish Collective in Seattle, Washington. The Parish Collective helps people see and realize God's dream of renewing a truly local church right where they are. If we put the church in the center as the why, as the purpose, then it's actually just about us. The purpose of the church is not us. The purpose of the church is about God and what God's doing. Tim Sorens, thank you for being here today, all the way from the West Coast. How's how's the West Coast, and how are you doing today? I'm doing so well, Justin. It's such a gift to be here. I'm in Seattle, where, surprisingly enough, it's cold and raining. I lived in the Bellingham area, which is about two hours north. Yeah. My my wife is from there, so we lived out there for three years. We were part of a, a church, Christ the King, up there and some smaller churches, church plants for three years. Loved the area, loved the fact that we could go to the beach or drive an hour into the Cascades and go to Mount Baker. So we definitively miss the land, even though we do not miss the housing prices that are there. (laughs) They do go together. Thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. I, I came upon your book two years ago when it was first released. We had a staff meeting and the the gentleman, Tim Deering, he was starting to assign book books to people on staff that we were supposed to read and then give a book report about. And he assigned your book. He's like, hey, this fits in with some of the stuff that Netzer's doing and also questions it and challenges it a little bit in a good way. And we always want to be yeah, in that kind of tension. So I got assigned that book. I made a PowerPoint presentation on it and everything else. <laughs> and then COVID happened, or it was like in the midst of COVID. And then we have never done another staff book report since doing the book report that I did on it. <laughs> so that means that it's the reigning book report. <laughs> it is. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Like, was it like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, no, that didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. So we're not going to do that. Or did I crush it? Did I knock it out of the park? But the book uh, you released in 2020 is Everywhere You Look, Discovering the Church Right Where You Are. And so we're going to get into a couple questions about that book in just a minute. But first, could you briefly share who you are, including family, any kind of faith history you want to share possibly what kind of music, movies, Netflix shows you're watching, and then what kind of work are you doing in the kingdom of God currently? I'm currently in the South Park neighborhood of Seattle, in the south end of Seattle, and am married to an incredible woman who's in Cote, who's originally from Santiago, Chile. And we've been married for 15 years. We've got three boys who are somewhat annoyingly and awkwardly spaced out about five years in between, been changing diapers for over a decade and uh, a dear friend of mine who were the same age, but he's got, his kids are just about to go to college actually. And he said, yeah, you're going to be, you're going to have teenagers forever, which is technically true, but three incredible boys who are right now, as we record 11, six and two, two books I've been reading that I would both endorse. I read uh, Bono's new memoir, Surrender. People love or hate you too, but I'm, I'm on the love side. He's a, 
he's a brilliant writer. Honestly, I, like every page, I just wanted to take a bath in. It was so wonderful. And the audiobook is totally worth it. They spent a lot of money on the production. There's all kinds of music. And he's actually particularly good with mimicking the people that he's talking to. Like his, it's pretty incredible. Like he does impress- impressions almost of them? He does impressions. So, so yeah, so like he does like a Bill Clinton impression. He'll do like, when he talks about Paul McGinnis, their manager, he, he does that voice and he's like spot on. So the other book that I'm really into is called I Never Thought of It That Way by monica guzman she's actually here in seattle it's not a, a faith-based book but she um she's essentially written a really i think powerful book on the power of curiosity in a very polarized age um that that truly being curious of one another is one of the virtues that if we do not recover we are going to be in deeper and deeper trouble i i agree with her and also it's, it's a beautifully um written book the subtitle is how to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times. So great stuff. Most of my time is spent. I'm the co-founding executive director of the parish collective, which is a essentially a, a national and somewhat international network of churches and missional communities and new monastic communities and all kinds of congregations that are organized around the idea of how do we join in the dreams of God in our neighborhoods, basically kind of place-based or neighborhood-based churches primarily it's both a network, but also kind of a campaign. I've been working with the Parish Collective for about 12 years and am a co-founder of it. And that's the primary work. And then the other thing, I don't know if we'll even get into this, but the other thing that I, the kind of side project is something else I started called Neighborhood Economics. And that's kind of a faith-friendly organization that's trying to figure out how do we move capital and resources towards the entrepreneurs who don't usually get it, whether that because of historic racism or oppression or redlining or just where they happen to live rural farmers for example or whatever so thanks so much for not only your writing and putting your words i'm sure that can be a scary thing to put something together and out into the world but also thanks for the work you do for the the regional churches there's probably different places all over the country that your influence has touched so thank you for thinking through god's dream and helping others to think through god's dream and we'll be right back to jump into the book everywhere you look reminder to the audience that any kind of important thing that we talk about will be in the show notes, including links to the book, to Parish Collective. Um, But Tim, so starting in chapter one, you have this quote and you say this, we just might be in the early days of a reformation that will one day be written about in history books. You, along with most of us, observe that the church is in many ways declining, at least in America. But you also hint in that chapter that there is this good news in that hard reality. Can you kind of tease that out a little bit? What is that good news that you're sensing, even though the church might be in decline? I think maybe the best news of the decline is that scores of churches and congregational leaders, both ordained and lay, are beginning to ask different kinds of questions than perhaps they've ever been asking before. And I think they're taking us all in a different direction. And I think the fundamental question that's different, that 
gives me incredible hope. And it would arguably be the reason why we might dare think that we might be on the precipice of something really big and beautiful that God would be doing is because that question essentially has to do with what is God up to as the primary question. And it's a real question, not just like a Sunday school question. And it demands kind of our lives individually and collectively. It makes us go on a different kind of adventure as opposed to the question that most of us and myself included was kind of formed to ask. And that's essentially the church question, which is a good one, but it's essentially how do I grow the church or how do I lead a healthy church or how do I get more people to come to my church or how do I, what do I do with my building? All of these are really important, understandable and crucial questions, but they take us on a path that without ever meaning to, I think our default can be to focus back on ourselves as opposed to God and what God is doing and what God desires. What are the dreams of God? What is, what is God up to? And so I think when we ask that fundamental question together within a particular place, it sends us down a journey that we're certainly reliant on God and God's activity. We're dependent on the activity of God. But because of that, I think that God's going to take us on incredible adventures. And I think in asking that question with our lives, we will discover and rediscover not just what it means to say, go to a church or grow a church, but how to be the church. That gets into chapter two of your book. So one of the conversations that we have in our cohorts all the time is about what is the church? That's an okay question. You kind of have this bigger, like what's God's dream. But if we could kind of come down to that question, what is the church? You know, we talk about, we see different examples in scripture that the church is a bride or a body, a temple, a flock or a family. And we want to think about that because we don't want to fall into the cultural norms of thinking the church as some kind of consumeristic business or some kind of industrial machine. But you say that what is the church is a good question, but it's not quite as important as another question. And it even might distract us. A better question for right now, at least, is what is the church for? What is the church is a good question, but what is the church for might be a better question. Yeah, I, Justin, I think that little word for, by adding that on the end, well, as I was just saying, it takes us on such a different journey, actually. A number of years ago, some of the listeners maybe know of the writer and kind of speaker, Simon Sinek. He, he did a really popular TED talk or like TEDx talk called Start With Why. And in it, and I write about this in Everywhere You Look, I had a bit of a moment, I think, because I was asking both of these questions uh, myself and also with lots of friends and had, you know, for at least for me, something of an epiphany because this author, Simon Siddick, he basically says that great movements, great organizations, great leaders have the clarity and tenacity to put their why or their purpose at the center of everything they do. As opposed to, and he says, what most people do is to put what they do, like that's what people talk about is what they do, not why they do it. But that's actually not what gets us out of the bed in the morning. It's actually not even why people might buy things if you're a company. Or he, he says, like, it is the why that is everything. And if you can get the why right, that needs to essentially be the bullseye. And that's kind of how he constructs it. Like, even if you're listening, you know, at home or on a jog or doing the dishes, kind of think of a circle with why in the center. And then from there, the word how, and then from there, the word what. It hit me hard because I was like, oh, the what? That's the church. We're always talking about the church. We're always talking about uh, ourselves. But that's actually, if we put the church in the center as the why, 
as the purpose, then it's actually just about us. Like the, the purpose of the church is not us. The purpose of the church is about God and what God's doing. So I would, I would propose that if we ask, say, what is the church for? How I personally would answer that. And I would encourage everyone to answer it honestly, but it's a, it's a healthy conversation is that the purpose of the church is, I love the language of the, the dream and dreams of God. You could say Shalom, which of course is all throughout scripture. You could say it's about the reconciliation and renewal of everything, which is a, a longer way of talking about Shalom. That's I think what the church exists for. And if that becomes in a sense, our North star or our bullseye, then I think we're we're literally beginning to play a different game than if we're just talking about how do we kind of again put the the church at the center, which I don't I just don't believe it fits there. It's kind of like a um, it's not big enough for it's important. I mean I've given my life to the church, and most of the listeners have, but I just don't think it's a it's not a big enough container for all that God wants to do. Do you have any concern in rightfully putting the church in its place, but with the current cultural climate, people hearing that as in, I can do this kingdom of God stuff separate from the local church. It can be easy to isolate and make the kingdom of God a abstract reality. And yet the kingdom of God is, as Scott McKnight would say, happens within a people, you know, and ultimately within a church. And again, you're not saying get rid of the local church, Uh -uh. but the importance of it. Could you talk a little bit about that a little bit more? What comes to mind? You on your own are not a church. (laughs) None of us are. And I also just frankly don't believe sociologically you can participate in the kingdom of God as an individual, but I don't think that you can be a signpost of it on your own Mm -hmm. in a way that anyone can belong to. Mm -hmm. Uh, You need that for that. You need, there needs to be a group, an entity. I think it can it can be two or three. That's conceivable. I mean, Jesus talks about that as kind of the minimum viable number for an ecclesia. But I do not think it can be you in yourself, even if you're a super Christian or whatever. I think that's really important to underscore because we arguably live in the most individualistic culture of humankind. And so, no, I I feel like this book and much of my life is fighting for the church. Actually, fighting for really the beauty of it. But that's why I want it to be in the proper place. Because if you kind of stretch things to where it breaks, you're not actually doing it a, a service. You're actually harming it. Part of the fallout and decline, I believe, is by the church making itself the point. I think um, that's cultivated some of the abuses and narcissism within the church. I also think it's produced some of the just like, well, that's not that interesting. <laughs> like that's kind of, maybe I'm not into it. I think a local church that's dependent and pointed at the dreams of God in a particular place, I think that ends up being really, really compelling for everybody. And frankly, I'm not in a season right now where I'm like struggling with a whole lot of like doubt theologically. Maybe some listeners are. I believe pretty firmly actually that even if there is not a God, even if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, I believe he did. But even if God is not renewing and restoring everything, we live in a world and a culture right now which is which i believe is literally crying out for small teams of people or maybe large who are pointing themselves at the common good of a particular place not a single issue the whole of it 
And they have a narrative, a story that says things like forgive each other 70 times seven, uh, bear one another's burdens. If by all means possible, stay put and um, be formed and shaped by that place, even as you're seeking to be to, to shape it. That's not necessarily a, I mean, I'm talking about scriptural ideas. So yes, that's part of what I would hope for for the church. But I feel like our culture, at least in the United States, is really desperate for the church to be the church and the church to be truly local. If we don't put things in their proper place, they can easily become an idol, you know, such as the church, like, oh, we really want to push, promote whatever the local church, but if you put it in the wrong place and put too much, put improper value on it, then it ends up not being able to be what it truly is. And then it can't be what it's made for, 100%. that we can't be what we're made for. And so I think we have, yeah. and then we all lose. Yeah, we all lose. And I think we, there's, a, you know, different things that we wrestle with that and putting things in the primacy into the prime place when they need to be, they're still important, but they need to be a level or two down uh, so that they can kind of be what they're actually meant to be. One of the things I loved about your book is that sometimes you have these little parenthetical things, almost like you're talking to somebody and you'll kind of talk about yourself a little bit. You'll kind of jab yourself. In one of the chapters of your book, you make this simple confession that you wanted to be a rock star pastor. I, I don't know if I regret it. It's probably too strong. I, I wrestle with whether or not to have that particular confession. It is true. And I'm, I can't be the only one. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, um, in very recent church history, I grew up in Wisconsin and part of a wonderful kind of Christian family. And I didn't have any thought or expectation of going in any kind of ministry ever uh, when I was growing up. I did then an internship after college, which I met an incredible guy named Bob Lenz, who's a speaker who I adore. And that was an era, at least for me, living in the Midwest at the time where I had this tension and a lot of other, I think a lot of listeners had this. Uh, I think it's like one of the real gifts of what you could call like the seeker sensitive movement. And one of the real gifts of that era was, and maybe still is they're trying to create an environment for people who usually wouldn't be a part of a, a church gathering. And so it was kind of oriented towards, you could say hospitality. And so um, to the quote other, you know, not just our tribe, our team, our, our denominational friends our whatever, what I was most inspired by was what I tended to see was the most inspiring churches tended to be led by these like incredible communicators. I think that kind of became something that I prized. And and actually, here's a, a quick caveat. I actually think that that's not, I don't think that um, we necessarily need new generations to think of themselves as rock star pastors. Obviously, I don't think that's probably the best metaphors. However, when there is not a pastoral imagination to aspire to, we're also in a different kind of a hurt. And I feel like we are very much in that place right now. I feel like as human beings, we actually need to look up to not just our elders, but but even our peers in a, in a healthy, aspirational way. And I feel like that's one of the fallouts of our contemporary culture as it relates to the church and how much how uncool it is, frankly. I live in Seattle. Being a pastor is not cool at all. It hasn't been for 20 years, and it's worse and worse. And that's true in large parts of the country now, where it used to be at least respected, if not honored. And I mean, that's one of the real gifts. Some, I'm sure some folks have read people like Eugene Peterson. I think that's one of the things that he did is he really, he validated and honored without it being a rock star thing. But it's like, 
gave aspiration to the to the title of leading churches. I went to seminary with kind of this imagination. Of course, I would, would never have said it out loud, but it was in the air. And then um, through seminary, I you know I really became enamored with. And you can it, some folks will probably hear it in how I've been talking about things like the dream of God, kind of the missional church movement, and thinking through the kind of missio day and and the and kind of incarnation and. Where it turned for me is that I got invited to this talk by both Alan Hirsch and Michael Frost, who are Australian missiologists, essentially. This is about 20 years ago. It's actually where I met Paul Sparks, who's the co-founder of the Parish Collective. This was the nail in the coffin because Michael Frost, if you've ever heard Michael Frost speak, he's just one of the best communicators on the planet. I mean, he has all the gifts and skills to be a rock star pastor. And in, in Sydney, where he's from, it was earlier something of a rock star, at least communicator, if not pastor. And so... He started telling the story about how they were planting this church in this particular neighborhood in, in Sydney. And he had decided, and and his his like elder team had discerned because he was somewhat well known as a communicator, literally because he was good at it, they decided that he would not preach. Because that's actually not the game they were playing. They actually wanted to deeply embed themselves in the neighborhood. They wanted to figure out a way of life together. They wanted that was a gift and skill that as far as timing. They realized they couldn't use. Well, I when he told that story, I almost fell off my chair. You're like, what? What? Why would you not use that gift? Yeah. to increase the kingdom of God. How could you you've got it all? Exactly. That sent me down a path I've been on for a very long time, which asks a question of, yeah, how can we be the church at a very ordinary, livable kind of everyday sense of what does it mean to be the church in our neighborhoods, and how do we how do we do that together? that's not necessarily dependent on a really compelling communicator. And of course, I think compelling communicators are great. And I definitely think there's a role for preaching and all the things. But as the primary platform to build everything around, I think that might not be wise, at least in the current season that we're in. What would be a step or two that you feel like is an easy first step in trying to get away from maybe a pulpit-centered or a quote-unquote celebrity-centered model to just like start opening the door when this is just what we do. This is the pattern we've been in for so long. We want to do something different. What might be a first step for a church to consider to kind of open up God's dream a little bit? It's a simple but difficult switch. And that is most of us were formed and trained to create an incredible kind of Sunday environment to get as hopefully kind of as many people there on Sunday together. And then from Sunday, of course, then we're trying to get people into small groups or missional communities or to be more active. I think there's a very simple but difficult switch that we can do. And that is to be looking for, to really be on the hunt for small teams of people in our congregations who actually do want to be the church in the neighborhood. They are loving their neighbors. They are being hospitable. They are praying for other people. They are asking these questions of what, what is God up to and, and trying to be whole life disciples together. If pastors can tell those stories and encourage and create space for that, I think that is the pathway. And then I think actually the role, at least one of the primary roles of preaching, which I think is really important, is then to remember like theologically, scripturally, how their lives together matter so much and why we are so dependent on God's activity as opposed. So it's, it's like, rather than get them to come in, in order to go out, we look for how they're out and use the, you could say the gathering to be encouraging and celebrating, lamenting 
their lives together. That I think is one of the healthiest, you could say, kind of dynamics between Sunday gathering, which I think is actually vitally important, and the rest of our life together. How important, I know this is a stupid question, but how important is the Holy Spirit <laughs> in in the midst of all this where we might not intentionally think about it and because we're not giving proper awareness to it that we might accidentally forget about it? Where's the Holy Spirit fit in this? Well, visually where the Holy Spirit fits and, and when we do like parish collective learning communities, and this is in the book as well, if you'll go with me just for a second, that the center, going back to that Simon Sinek uh, three circle kind of bullseye thing, if the center is God's dream of the why, then the how I would say needs to be the Holy Spirit. And if we skip over that, then it's so easy for us to begin to default into thinking, actually, this is ours to do. Like, thank you very much, God. I understand that you want for us to be working for the uh, reconciliation of everything. You want us working for justice. You want us telling our neighbors about who you are and what you've done for them. You want all of these good things. But actually, if we aren't actually trusting that the Holy Spirit is at work within us and in a sense, like out ahead of us, that we join the Spirit's work as opposed to delivering the Holy Spirit, if that makes sense, it can, it just, unfortunately, it does horrible things for us as human beings. It, it's a, it's, it, it can be a very slippery slope, frankly, of sin that basically goes one of two ways. If we try and implement the dreams of God without being dependent on the Holy Spirit, and I've done this a hundred thousand times, which is why repentance matters so much, either we're relatively successful and then you know, go back to the garden story. What's kind of the human emotion of being successful? Pride, get puffed up. I did it. I can take on more. I can extend my limits. This worked here. I'm sure I can do it everywhere. Or I tried and I I just fell on my face. It's a complete disaster. Well, then what's what's the deep, deep human emotion there? Shame. Uh, neither of which allow us to be created, beloved people created in the image of God. I mean, but arguably those are like two of the primal emotional realities of sin that we're all, and that's why I love the idea of repentance. It's like, a, it's a 180. It's like, no, the return is back to faithful presence on both sides. They feel different, really different actually, especially when you're like underway. But if we have, we're not dependent on the Holy spirit. I I'm pretty convinced those are the two pathways that you're choosing. I was raised in a wonderful Christian household. I wasn't necessarily trained. And I don't feel like I always know how to do this. Like, how do you, how do you just fo follow the Holy Spirit? Like, how do you even know? I mean, these are questions that we're always asking. I don't think there's a pure prescription. All I know is if we're not dependent on the Spirit to bring about the dreams of God, if we're not fundamentally trusting that God is saving people, restoring people, loving people more than we can, it sets us up to be God, and it doesn't work out very well.
One of the big things we at Netzer do is try to promote church unity across racial lines, across denominational lines, whatever kind of lines there are, try to bring the church together in a region, in a city, even just to get leaders to sit down together. And you have a, a church unity chapter called The Same Team, and you open it up with this one-liner from, he's a, he's a missionary theologian, Leslie Newbegin. And when I read, like, I didn't even read, like, I had to wait to read that chapter because I don't, and again, I don't know if you picked these quotes or if that was part of the publisher, whoever did it, I felt like it was inspired by the Holy Spirit at that time. This quote said this, it said, the divisions of the church are a public denial of the sufficiency of the atonement. The divisions of the church are a public denial of the sufficiency of the atonement. There are many great points in that chapter that you wrote about, Tim, but could you just touch on the three subversive postures that a core team, the congregation, should practice that help to expand the team, that help to kind of get people more so on the same team, not even just within the local congregation, yes, but maybe thinking broader, thinking outside of the local congregation. Could you talk about those, those postures, those practices a little bit more? Yeah, I, d- I did find that Newbegin quote, and it's it's a kicker. I, I feel like it's something that we need to like sit with. It's it's a painful reality, I think, to think about, and and hopefully that can kind of animate our desire to figure out how do we build trust and figure out how we actually are on the same team. I mean, a premise of so much of the work that I do is that if Christians it within the same place, the same geography, it's probably worth saying like. For us, we kind of define the parish or even a new kind of a parish. It's a, a geographical area that's big enough to live a lot of your life, kind of live workplace, so not just your block, but small enough to be known as a character within the story of that place. So, you know, if you're if you're thinking, oh yeah, Philadelphia is my parish. Well, no, that's way too big. So in urban areas, it tends to be a lot more like a neighborhood, but more rural areas, it might be, you know, 50, 60 square miles with some common centers and a lot of suburbs essentially are a parish, you know, with that in mind, if you begin to ask the questions of what is God's dream in that place, it's more like a dare actually like, oh yeah, we're not just talking about, you know, marriages being say whole or, or healthy. We're talking about real people, like people that we know. Um, it gets real, <laughs> real fast. So within that, as the as congregations and core team kind of members within, ideally kind of like within the same area as they're asking these questions, yeah, there's like, there's kind of three kind of simple from this to this pathways that I think are helpful. The first is from isolation to awareness. So that's just like we together are coming together and we're literally just beginning by listening. We're beginning by saying, Who else is here? What else is happening? Asking the question of what has got up to. I'm a big fan of the the field of appreciative inquiry, which is worth Googling for some folks. It's a whole field, literally beginning to look around uh, with kind of a grateful posture. I'm also really, have been really shaped by asset-based community development that looks for what's, as it's sometimes been said, uh, my friend Cormac says, look for what's strong as opposed to what's wrong. So if we're feeling kind of isolated, just to pay attention, to be aware. The second, of course, is from polarization to curiosity. And I feel like that's needed now more than ever. And if we as a local church can begin to practice it, I feel like that's something that literally will bless and hopefully begin to heal so much of our division, um, at least in this country. But I think it's happening all over the place, honestly. And the difference between awareness and curiosity, awareness is kind of seeing what 
is around, but curiosity, there's a little bit more of a intent behind it, would you say, where you're actually going and asking the question, not just looking around and see what comes up. You're aware of maybe something's going on over there, but then the curiosity part is like going there and then checking it out, examining it a little bit more. 100%. You can almost think of it as kind of a step two in a sense of like, yeah, okay, we see a bunch of stuff. Now let's get truly curious about it. Let's really become students of what's happening or of what of what people's stories are. Um, I mentioned at, at the top, my friend, um, Monica Guzman, who wrote this book on curiosity, I feel like it arguably is the antidote to polarization is getting curious, particularly for the people that we can't stand. I don't know how we can be faithful to God's mission in the world without becoming an increasingly curious people. And if we don't, the tribalism that we're all experiencing from all kinds of sides and all kinds of ways, I think is going to be increasingly our default. And then from fragmentation to integration. And that's really, if we're separate, if we're supposed to be the body of Christ, but our, you know, my friend Paul sometimes talked about hands, legs, feet are severed from each other. Like there isn't one body. There's just body parts. That's not a beautiful thing. It's actually like kind of gruesome. And again, none of this is perfect or pure, but like a, an integrating force. Like we're trying, we're trying to figure this out that we are actually, we do believe there is one Lord and one baptism and yeah, one church. And I think that can, we can kind of feel that most at the local level. Maybe think about it this way. If you you kind of go with me, even for a moment that the heart of God's mission is reconciliation and renewal. Then if the church is neither reconciled or one, then Christian mission requires church unity. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, (laughs) we have to smoke what we sell in that case. And if we're not, all of our neighbors know. So I think that just has to be a part of our mission that we have gifts and assets of other people, other congregations in our neighborhoods. And we don't have to agree on everything to find common ground. And frankly, you could say higher ground. I think it's, I think it's like one of the primary ways that we can visibly wrestle with what does it mean to be the church in our neighborhood? Part of that is trying to knit together the body of Christ. So if I'm, if I'm saying as a pastor in a local congregation, I'm about the mission of God, and yet there's not some part of us, of the congregation, trying to work, trying to integrate, trying to be curious, even about other Christians and other churches in the neighborhood, would you say that I'm, 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 I'm missing a key part of the mission of God then? I think so. Yeah. And it's long and slow, like all of the mission of God. It's stale cups of coffee every now and then. It's, I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's not probably going to be super glamorous, but slowly being curious about other congregations and the gifts, the skills, the theological distinctions, um, why they care about what they care about, what's their history, what are they up to right now? There's not going to be perfect alignment probably, but there absolutely will be things that you can do together minimally um, support each other as best you can to be grateful to each other. And we certainly can be praying for one another. The negatives of those things you just talked about, which were isolation, polarization, and fragmentation. Luckily in 2020, um, all of those things went away and they (laughs) weren't exasperated by COVID at all. (laughs) So your book came out in 2020. It was in competition with COVID a little bit. 
in what ways do you think that your words directly spoke to some of the needs of the epidemic? And maybe this is just with what you, with what you just shared, but also if you were to write like a second edition of the book, did you learn anything broadly speaking, or maybe even personally out of the season of COVID that in hindsight, you might've added to the book? Disasters reveal things, you know, I'm sure lots of people have heard the pandemic talked about as a as a apocalyptic in the sense of there was a great revealing yeah uncovering and uh, uncovering exactly and that was good and bad based on where you were and um but one of the things that got uncovered that i think we don't talk about enough is that social capital or the trust between people gets revealed when things go bad not when things are going well and so I feel like the the people in neighborhoods that really came together, often that was because there was some trust, there was some friendship, some kinship, some affection, some understanding of each other, both within the church and just like neighbors banding together with neighbors, right? That's one of the perhaps gifts. If I was to write a, an afterward, having gone through these two years of the pandemic at a macro level, and I think this is pretty difficult to refute the anxieties and tensions and questions that a lot of us were wrestling with before the pandemic got accelerated, I think by anywhere from five to even 15 years. It like shrunk down time, I think, as far as the capacity to go about our old default ways of being. And I'm not talking about like technology adoption. I'm not talking about like, oh, we've always thought about having a simulcast and now we do. That's a different conversation. It's fair enough to have, but I'm talking about that like ache that a lot of us were having. Like, there's got to be a different way of doing this. We're like this. I don't feel like I'm, we are living into our kind of highest redemptive potential. There's like something's off and it's really, really hard to lead churches, to be in a church. So there is zero shame. It is hard for me. This is not like. It's hard full stop, but I think some of the like cracks that we were beginning to see before 2020 widened. And for a lot of us now, it's like, well, we have to go about in a new direction on some level. I mean, even if you go back to the rockstar pastor church thing, I feel like that used to be a story that lots of people thought they could do. And maybe it's still true in some parts of the country. I can, I can tell you definitively, at least in the Pacific Northwest, no one is thinking that that's possible. No one. No one is thinking, well, if I can just work hard to be the next Willow Creek, I think I can pull it off. No one's thinking that. That was a dominant script for much of at least a kind of cross-section of, you could say, evangelical kinds of uh, leadership. Nope, that's gone. And so what does that mean now? Well, I think it means a lot of us are saying that we have to get back to a much more local, relational, patient dependent on the spirit kind of way of being the church that the hype potentially, or even Sunday centricity isn't going to get us to where we need to go. I, because I'm surrounded by so many incredible people and expressions and leaders who are doing that so beautiful. I'm profoundly hopeful. I mean, most of us are hopeful or not based on our point of view, the view of the point of which we watch. And I have this ridiculous privilege of getting to know hundreds and thousands of incredible people that are doing incredible things. I mean, they're not celebrated. They're not going to be on the front of Time magazine or their local paper even, but they are faithfully pursuing 
the work of God. You know, there's there are there are even people groups that have had to learn how to be particularly innovative because of oppression. Pretty much every racial minority and and every like immigrant church has had to wrestle with different ways of being the church. And in a lot of ways, I think they are going to need to be our guides if they're if they're willing um, and if we have the humility to learn from them. I think that's a a big story that I'm I'm hoping and praying will continue. Tim Sorens, thank you so much for writing and for sharing your heart. I was wondering before we jump off the call. Oh, by the way, I will be in Seattle in August, so I might look you up and I might take you out. I don't know if you drink coffee or I've got or, a coffee shop. Or, okay, sweet. I would love to come to that coffee shop then. What's what's the name of that? It's called Resistencia Coffee in South Park. That's awesome. Would you mind closing out our time speaking words of encouragement to pastors or leaders that are out there that are that are trying to be the church and trying to discover the church in their neighborhood? They're trying to live into God's dream, even if they don't use that language. Like, What would be a, a, a closing word, a final thought that you would encourage us with? Well, I'm going to say this to myself too, but um, I, I guess I would say that all of the things that we long to see happen. If they are of God's, they're God's, which means God holds them. God's active. We aren't actually the heroes of the story. We don't need to be. God is. And um, that means that we get to rest in that reality, no matter how hard it is right now or how successful we feel or don't feel. And many of us right now do not feel successful. We do not feel like, yeah, we're killing it. A lot of us are barely hanging on. And to you, and and I'm including myself there, we have to remember that this is God's. It's all gift, which we get to freely receive. We cannot crank to make it happen. Even though we all have deep longings to see things happen, that we would find the way, hold the posture of receiving. Because if we're just trying to turn the crank harder and harder, I don't think it's a crank that we can turn. 